On this Air Check episode, our guest is Kirby Confer, owner of the radio company Forever Media. Kirby talks about being a Baltimore DJ TV dance show host, his move into radio ownership, his belief in branding radio stations, and his involvement in the national radio talent system. Let's get to it. Welcome to Air Check Season 2, a podcast about radio's personality. From radio personalities, managers, consultants, owners, and your most humble hosts from Philadelphia, Rich DeSisto and Paul Kelly. Hey, this is Rich DeSisto. And I'm Paul Kelly. Our guest today is a radio group owner who is also a member of the Country Radio Hall of Fame. He is the inventor of the Froggy Country Radio format and is also a member of the Pennsylvania Broadcasters Hall of Fame. During the 60s and early 70s, he was Baltimore's highest rated local radio and TV personality by virtue of his daily local radio broadcast and his pop music teen dance telecast, The Kirby Scott Show. He's got lots to tell. So I got this email from a friend yesterday. Kirby, congratulations on your indictment into the Country Music Radio Hall of Fame. And I'm hoping it was a spell check error, but what? who knows? I will say it is a pleasure to be indicted here tonight. A hundred years from now, people will still be listening to country music no matter what technology is delivering it. The singers will still be singing, they'll be singing the stories of our lives, and we will still be informing and entertaining with the stories of the people in our cities and towns. This is a wonderful business, and all I can tell you is, I'm just, I think we're on the cusp of just, we are the only medium radio that can connect with the internet like nobody else. Newspapers can't do it. Television can't do it. We're the one that has that back and forth connection to the internet that will sustain us. And thank you all very much. Thank you. Here he is, Forever Media founding partner and owner, Kirby Confer. Well, thank you, guys. It's great to be here. What's going on? We appreciate uh, your time. We know how busy you are. I mean, you're a radio station owner. We're, we're talking with all different types of people in the radio industry, from uh, air personalities to program directors to music directors. You're our first owner that we've had here on AirCheck. We mm-hmm. understand an owner can be a little bit busy, but you've set aside time to spend with Rich DeSisto and me. So first, we have to say thank you by starting this AirCheck session with you. Well, you're more than welcome. You know, when you say I'm an owner, that that is true. I'm a partner at this point because I'm officially retired, but uh, I'm busier than I've ever been in my life. I'm 79 years old and uh, our company has uh, 80 plus radio stations that are ably managed by my partner, Donald Alt and uh, Lynn Deppen, who's the president of the company. And they operate from Florida and from um, Pittsburgh. And I operate from my house in a retirement community in Fort Mill, South Carolina. And I consult, of course, that company forever. But I'm also very involved in consulting my daughter's company, which is called uh, Seven Mountains Media, which is primarily in Pennsylvania. Kirby, your story is going to be a real fun journey to cover in this session. Your path as a broadcaster charts over five decades. It's taken left turns and right turns to reach the goal of owner or partner, as you put it. And through the years, you've also been a radio personality, a program director, a TV show host. You were an MC for this new British group in 1964. You invented a few new brands for the country music format. You climbed the proverbial ladder through it all, but you also, at the age of 15, was literally tasked to climb the radio tower ladder to change the light bulb. Oh, and let's not forget, <laughs> that same kid also picked the call letters for said radio station. Um, you know, that 
that's a, I can do an hour just on you know the first month yeah. uh, getting into radio. The path that your career has taken, though, has connected you with so many things, including two iconic movies, Hairspray and Play Misty for me. Oh, I mentioned that no-name British band in 1964 for which you emceed. Okay, it was the Beatles <laughs> and the world of Disney epiphanized your creation of brand invention. Yeah. It seems that there was one turn, though, in your career that seemed to open up these doors for you and create most of these encounters. It's when you left your hometown of Williamsport, PA, for Baltimore, Maryland. Let's start there. Talk about that journey. I My great formative years in radio after Williamsport uh, went through Harrisburg, a town, a Lewistown, Pennsylvania, where my daughter owns most of the stations today, believe it or not. And, uh, but eventually I went to work for a genius by the name of Art Carlson, who was the president of Susquehanna Broadcasting. They only had two stations, York and Scranton, Scranton Wilkes-Barre. And uh, I worked for them for three years, four, no, four years from 60 to 64. And Art Carlson was a mentor to me. I watched him, I watched marketing. He completely redescribed the market as warm land, which wasn't just Scranton. The station was a Scranton station, but all of a sudden they were Scranton, Wilkesbury, Hazleton, Stroudsburg, everything. They were all of Northeastern. <laughs> Remember, you heard it. I'll bet you danced to it not so long ago. Now's your chance to hear it again on Warm Land Radio. I learned so much in those years. Um, and then a big break. Um, my, my original partner, Paul Rothfuss, was already, because he, you know, I'm the crazy one. Paul was the voice of God. <laughs> he was already on WCAO in Baltimore, which was the number one rock station in Baltimore. Three. Until then, this is the ride reminding you to keep the garbage can covered, the dog tied tightly, and the baby fed. The Paul Rogers Show. I had taken a job in Syracuse for four weeks in a blizzard, and I was regretting it. <laughs> and he called me up and he said, "There's an opening in Baltimore." And um, I said, "Oh my God, Paul! What?" He said, "It's just nights, but it's it's more than you're making now." And I said, "Well." He said, you got to be down here because they're going to pick this guy from Philadelphia. If you don't get down here, I'll get you the appointment. So I went down, I interviewed for the job and I, I was cheap. And um, the, the, uh, the other guy for the job was a guy named Heavy Harvey Miller from Wibbage in Philadelphia, who eventually doesn't get that job. With you, IBG Weatherman says mostly cloudy tonight and Thursday with several periods of rain. Low tonight near 32, tomorrow's high 50. WIBG temperature now 38 degrees in South Philly. Humidity in West Philadelphia at 89%. Your host for the most having fun till one, humble How V. Miller. You may have known this story, but he went to San Francisco, where eventually uh, he would be involved in a murder, where he murders a woman in a love triangle and claims that he couldn't have done it because he was on the air. Ladies and gentlemen, from Burbank, you're listening to a Super Weekend, where you're hearing your favorite all-time oldies on the Harvey Miller Show from Super 15 KBLA. 10 o'clock in Los Angeles, 10 o'clock, baby, curfew time is here. What you gonna do about it? And eventually it comes out that he had taped himself on the air while he went out to kill her. Wow. He goes to San Quentin 
and Clint Eastwood makes the movie play Misty for me. I listen to you all the time. Well, I knew somebody was out there. <laughs> You're making fun of me. No, I'm not. Say something else, huh? Such as? Play Misty for me. Very good. That's the guy that didn't get my job that I got because I worked for 25, no, no, 75 bucks a week less than, than he was going to work for. <laughs> so you dodged a bullet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I dodged a bullet, but let me tell you, the next six months are a rocket ride because uh, in, in the first month, I get a call. The manager of the station said, um, Kirby, there's somebody on the phone from Capitol Records. They need somebody to MC some gig. I don't know. And it was the end of the day and everybody was gone. And I'm the new guy. I'm just, I'm the night guy. So I took the phone call and the guy said, uh, this is Bill Turner from Capitol Records. Uh, we've got an act coming in and um, we're wondering, you know, all the other DJs are busy. The guys who were the famous guys on the on our station. <laughs> and, uh, you know, would you be available? And I said, what's the date? Like, like I wasn't, cause I'd never had a gig. <laughs> and uh, all, the other, all the other guys were doing record hops for, you know, we only made a hundred and a quarter a week. They were doing record hops for 75 a piece or a hundred a piece and bar mitzvahs at set, and I had nothing. I said, well, I think he's, what day is it? Uh, it's September 23rd. I said, and, and it's now like February. I said, yeah, let me look. Yeah, I, I think I'm okay. I said, fine, <laughs> we'll send you a contract Would $200 be, would that be adequate? Would that be adequate? <laughs> yes, sir, that would be, that would be wonderful, thank you. So I ran up to call the program director, a guy named Johnny Dark, and I said, Johnny, I got my first gig. He said, what is it? I, I, I don't know, Johnny. I got really excited. I'll have to call the guy back. <laughs> so I called Bill Turner back and I said, what is it? He said, you haven't heard of them. He said, but they're big in England. They're called the Beatles. There comes Ringo right off the bat. And you can hear the group behind him. When uh, I got the gig, it was uh, one show. And by the time the day came, it was two shows. One in the afternoon, one in the evening. 13,000 kids in a show. All I can remember is uh, some girl leaped out of the balcony. I, I don't think we knew what mosh pits were in those days. I think she just fell out of the balcony because she <laughs> wanted screaming, John, John, or whatever, you know, falling out. But um, the, my, my really only recollection, I, I have two, two, two recollections, no, three. First is coming into the uh, Baltimore Civic Center with them. I uh, Myself and Johnny Dark was with me because Johnny was our program director. We had our WCIO good guys sweatshirts on. The old good I had guys. never had clothing ripped off my body ever before or since. <laughs> so that's the first memory. Uh, the second memory is that being on stage at that moment where I said, ladies and gentlemen. Here are the Beatles. It was like 13,000 because there were flashbulbs. Remember flashbulbs? Oh, yeah. 13,000 flashbulbs like lightning again and again, you know, blinding, just blinding. I remember that. But the fun thing that I remember is we uh, we bid them goodbye at the Lord Baltimore Hotel the next day. And we went down. And of course, we were privileged because we were I had interviewed them the day before. Oh, I had another little side memory. I did this really, really great interview, ran it on the air uh, and years later. Heard it. It was syndicated. Somebody had gotten a hold of this tape and zipped me out and zipped themselves in, like a, like a Casey Kasem guy. I said, <laughs> that's my interview. I know that interview. Those are my questions. So but anyway, we go down to the Lord Baltimore Hotel, and uh, the Beatles come down, and they go out, and of course, they're screaming and yelling and so forth and so on. And I was asked to go, and I don't know what it was. 
somebody in the entourage said, could you go back up and get Paul something <laughs> up in the room? And I went back up to the room. And what do you think they were doing? Tearing up the carpet and putting it into one-inch squares on pieces of cardboard and selling them for a buck a piece. Now, if tickets to the show were only two seventy-five, but this is carpeting from Paul McCartney's room, and they couldn't get them downstairs fast enough. So, uh, th those are my main memories. Uh, and of course, uh, being asked, it wasn't even then. It was it was later. I was asked, you know, would would you like the Beatles would like you to do them a favor? Here's the name of the guy on Radio Caroline. Without him, uh, they never would have defeated the BBC and, and gotten their music played in England because the BBC said the Beatles and that kind of music is trash. Hmm. And so the Beatles set me up with an English DJ on a, on a boat, a ship called Radio Caroline, which is pirate radio. But at that time, I didn't know it. Riding at anchor or carriage and safely outside the three-mile limit, the innocent-looking ex-ferryboat Caroline is causing quite a stir in official circles. She's a floating broadcasting station, hoping to make a big thing out of commercial radio and waiting for the advertisements to roll in. The radio company believe it's all perfectly deep. It'll be interesting to see if the young men behind this adventure can stand up against the Postmaster General, the BBC, International Telecommunications, and all the other opposition. But the Beatles set me up with them with a deal that if I would send him all of the U.S. DJ copy releases before they were in the stores that I would predict that I thought were going to be hits, the Radio Caroline DJ would send me all the advanced copies from England. This is Radio Caroline on 199, England's first commercial radio station. My name's Simon D. with you for the next two hours. It's Sunday on Radio Caroline International, and for the next three hours, we present the American Hot 100 Show. But, uh, you know, getting that first box of records from England, I remember, uh, what, who, who are these people? The Rolling Stones and not fade away. What's this? What's, you know, what's new, Pussycat? What's that? You know, it's like a, the whole foreign deal. It was so much fun, um, you know, lighting up the phones like that with, who are they? What is this? And, you know, you can just tell that the, the word of mouth, uh, you know, up and down Baltimore and Washington was crazy from it. It was great. It was fun days. So at what point did you start to realize that this was something here? Not just the Beatles, but getting all those uh, advanced records from England with the Stones and the whole British invasion. When did you start to realize, wait a minute, there's something here? I think when the reading book came out in Baltimore and I, I beat the Orioles, <laughs> then, then I knew it was something. Uh, you know, the management was, to, to their credit, you had, we had a little a little manager who was who was a drunk, and he uh, he, he had his own liquor cabinet, and every day by five o'clock, and we'll not mention his name, God rest his soul, but he was a neat guy. But I went into him and I said, I have this box of records from England, and I think I got the hottest thing on the planet right here. I want my own special hour at seven o'clock, seven to eight o'clock every night because I have to break format. I mean, we were extremely formatted. I said, no, I, it's free form. I'm just going to do this. I'm going to talk about this stuff. I'm going to take phone calls. And the manager said, because by the time I got to him, it was the end of the day. I'll do whatever you want, kid. You, you, you do what you want, kid. What so, was uh, yeah. What was the format of the radio station? Oh, very strict top 40, you know. Uh, and I, don't, I didn't even know that we played the top 40. It was kind of a, um, what was the guy's name, Mike, you know, the, the hot hits guy? Yeah. Mike Joseph. 
Mike Joseph yes. was the guy who invented hot hits. I'm pretty sure we were pretty close to a hot hits. It was like, whatever the top 40 was, that's, that's what you played. The British invasion had begun. I mean, the ratings were huge. And um, it led to a TV show. It led, it led to a TV show in Washington, D.C., where, I, where you know we were number two in Washington with this thing called the Liverpool Hour. So I get this TV gig doing a show called Wingding for a year and cut my teeth in television. And then the NBC affiliate in Baltimore called me. So that was the Kirby Scott show. And I was just, I was riding the wave. More of this air check session is next. Are you ready to tell some stories from the studio and beyond? We'd love to hear them. Email aircheckme at gmail.com to join Rich DeSisto and Paul Kelly on Aircheck, a podcast about radio's personality from radio personalities. The, the wing ding, the, the Kirby Scott. How did you get into television from being the night guy on WCAO? I was the night guy on CAO, but uh, I had just beaten Orioles baseball in the ratings with the Liverpool Hour. And I was number two in the Washington, D.C. ratings at night with this thing called the original Liverpool Hour. Because I had record companies were calling me screaming, saying, you've got to stop it. We don't even have those records. What are you doing? People are in here. What? They want Freddie and the Dreamers. Who the hell are they? So a, a guy named Milt Grant, who had the license for this TV station, Channel 20, calls me up and said, would you want to come over and audition? I said, a TV dance show. He said, yeah. So I went over, I auditioned and he said, look, we got 40 guys for the job and some really good guys here in town, but you're overweight. And uh, what do you weigh? I said, 240. He said, you know, look, television adds weight. Uh, we're not going on the air for six months, but if you can get yourself below 200 pounds in six months, you have the job. So wow. I went on this diet of broiled chicken breast. Little did I know it was a low carb Atkins keto diet. I didn't know. I just heard that you can lose weight on this thing. And I broke below 200. I get the job. And um, uh, it was UHF. And, and what did they want you to do? You got hired to do what? What was this show? What were you doing on the show? A live TV teen dance show. Wending. That's the show. It's just me. But I have to have kids. <laughs> but it's channel 20. Okay. What year are we talking so, here? What was the time frame? What were, 1966. So the next thing was, I got to have kids for the show, and I'm desperate. I mean, nobody even knows there is a Channel 20. So uh, <laughs> I, fortunately, I had a station wagon, and uh, I would, every afternoon, start at 3.15 when the schools got out, 10 minutes from our studios, which were in suburban Washington. So out in the northwest side of Washington, in Potomac, Maryland, very, very upscale communities. Mm. I would pull up in front of the school, roll down the wind and go, hey, kids, you want to be on a TV dance show? Yeah, where is it? Get in. And I would load the car up two or three times so that I had 10 or 15 kids in front of the cameras. And that's how Wingding got started. So, you know, a, a lot of adventures there. But you asked me how I got the show in Baltimore. It was because when the ratings came out for Channel 20, I had the only ratings. You mentioned a phrase uh, leading up to this story, uh, record hops. Talk a little bit about what that is, because I, I don't think a lot of people know what, what a record hop is. Well, uh, re record hops bought me my first house um, because uh, DJs were such powerful, popular personalities in those days. Everybody knew you and it, it really, it, it opened a lot of doors, but uh, I became an entrepreneur early on in that I realized that the other jocks who were at the station in Baltimore, they were um, hiring out for 75 to to $100. And they were very happy to get 75 or 100 bucks for two or three hours of work. And they take their record box and they do their bar mitzvah and so forth. And I looked at it and I thought, yeah, but I'm the most popular guy on the station. What if I could draw a couple hundred people? What if I could rent a firehouse 
what if I could rent an abandoned drugstore, which I did? What if I could get the acts and pay them? We have a record hop. Then when I was on TV, I had act all the acts I could handle free because every every day I had acts from England. Every Motown act in the on the planet, I have to say, except the Supremes, did my show again and again in Baltimore because, you know, the old Martha and the Vandellas record is uh, Dancing in the Streets. It's all about in Baltimore and D.C. now. If you wanted to break a record outside of Detroit, you needed to make it happen in Baltimore and D.C. I was the man. Come on my show. I mean, I had Stevie Wonder when he was 14 years old. Wow. Mary Wells. Um, Gladys Knight. This, I want to go on record. Who is the sweetest, sweetest nicest person this woman would call me up and say i have a new record can i be on your show she wouldn't even never, never mind with a record promoter a record she'd just call me up and say i'm going to be in town thursday do you, have, do you have space for me on the show what a wonderful lady she must have done my show 10 times in the four or five years i was on tv in those days the 50s started out in baltimore quietly enough but something was in the wind the music was changing people's clothes and hairstyles were changing even people's attitudes about each other seem to be changing. Rock and roll had arrived on the scene, and this new music had an edge that captured the spirit of the times. A man named Buddy Dean was beginning to reflect this period on a new device called television. Baltimore, of course, is the home of the Buddy Dean Show. Prior to my arrival in Baltimore and flat-topped kid with the uh, white socks. I don't know anything about this. I arrive in Baltimore in January of 64. Little do I know of the scandal that took place in the preceding year, which is the end of the Buddy Dean show. And the Buddy Dean show was the Dick Clark of Baltimore. Buddy Dean played on Baltimore television from 55 to 63 for eight years and was God, God in that town. But by the time I arrived there, I don't even know who he is. You know, people say, oh, back, you know, when Buddy Dean was here, I go, oh, Buddy Dean, some former DJ. I didn't know. The story is that Buddy was raised in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. Now, this is the blackest metro in the United States to this day. It's a metro of, I don't know, 80 or 100,000, but it's almost 80% black. But Buddy grew up at KOTN, Cotton, the station, in, which was owned by his white father. Activism has started for the first time in 1963. Buddy has this show with his immense ratings, and he's on, you know, six days a week. Blacks start picketing the WJZ-TV, Channel 13, Westinghouse, saying, why can't we be on the show? And Buddy was, like, incredulous. He couldn't, he couldn't believe it. And he had a contract that gave him absolute control of the content on the show, blah, 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 blah. No. And it got worse and worse and worse until Buddy said, and this, by the way, I'm going to tell you this because this is told to me by a kid on his show who became a record producer and served me for a, n a number of years, a guy named Joe Cash. I'm going to name him because I'm going to tell you where this came from. And Joe Cash was what they call a committee member. That was a regular who was on every day on the Buddy Dean dance show. The Buddy Dean show was, in the words of the host, a radio program on TV. The show was at the height of its popularity, broadcast live on Baltimore television, two to three hours a day, six days a week. Not only were Baltimore school kids watching every day, some of their classmates became the stars of the show, a group of dancers known locally as the committee. He said, when management of Channel 13 came to him and said, buddy, uh, if we don't integrate the show, you know, we're, we're just, we're going to have to close it down. And right about this particular time in the middle of the summer in 1963, Channel 13 buys their first color cameras 
And I don't know what they cost at that time, but you know, millions of dollars in today's dollars. They got you know three three brand new color cameras because the NBC, the station I was on was in color. So NBC, of course, they were like the pioneers of color, and this was the CBS station at the time. So now they're going to have color, and they've got the cameras. And the management comes to Buddy and goes, Buddy, here's what we need to do. We need to calm this down. We want you to do the show live from Gwyn Oak Amusement Park on Saturday outdoors in color. It'll be our first show in color. So they're promoting it like crazy for a couple of weeks. The Buddy Dean Show in color. And on that Saturday, they're ready to do the show. And they got all the white kids in there. And the black kids come and, and, and want to come in. And they go, oh, no, I'm sorry. We're sold out. And the black kids can, can look around and see. They're, they, they're, they storm the gates. They turn over the cameras, smash them. It's the end of the Buddy Dean Show. That's six months before I get there. One other thing I want to tell you was it was kind of interesting to me as the years went on. Up to that time, they had never had a black employee. I mean, it was a whole new world. It was several years after that they hired their first black employee and decided they were really going to take the big plunge. And they got this uh, young girl out of Nashville who could read the news. Her name was and is Oprah. Wow. Buddy Dean, king of Baltimore's rock scene in the 1950s, was our guest on People Are Talking this morning. Buddy returned to the same Channel 13 studio where his show originated from between the years of 1957 and 1964. I love to hear. I like what I'm doing, but I like that Baltimore is my second home. What are you doing now? Well, I own a radio station in Arkansas. And I still go and do the morning program there because I love it. I'm a ham. I like to be on the air. I like to talk to folks. I have a talk show kind of like yours. You know, do yeah. a lot of call-ins. And we talk saw some of that in the series that Jerry Turner yeah, did yeah, on Jerry the news. came down saw us. Mm -hmm. Buddy had fond memories of the kids who danced on his show, and we can all hear Buddy spinning platters this weekend on WCAO Radio. I, I can't say as for gospel, I'm going to guess she broke the black female color line in Baltimore, Maryland on television. Oprah came to WJZ from Nashville in the fall of 1976, anchored the news. And in 1978, was eventually teamed up with, well, me. I'm Richard Scher. And I'm Oprah Winfrey. So when I arrived, because what Channel 11 said to me when they recruited me from Washington, what would you think about doing a, a black show? I said, I don't have any problem with that at all. So from the get-go, mine was the first integrated show without any knowledge about Buddy Dean. Little did I know that a gay kid from Baltimore would become a problem at my show. Didn't know who he was. Management, this is the show is on for, I don't know, six months. Management comes to me and says, we have a problem. We got a kid that keeps sneaking in. And, you know, we have to keep tight security on this thing. Could you go talk to him? Because this is three times we've thrown him out. And you're, we're going to have to add more security guards. And we don't want to do that. And would you just talk to him? So I go and I talk to this kid. And he tells me a story. I said, well, where are you from? He said, my name's Johnny. Live down here at the bottom of Television Hill. Just want to be on the show. I said, Johnny, it's easy. Here's two tickets. Come through the front door with your girlfriend. You're on the show anytime. That, that won't work for me. I said, what, what's the problem? He said, well, look at me. I said, yeah, I'm looking at you. He said, I don't do girls. Uh, now, the boy with the flat top haircut was not that far out of Williamsport, Pennsylvania. And I must tell you, in that era, I had never met a gay person. I said to myself in a flash, Wow. I said, well, then why do you, if you don't want to dance on the show, why do you want to do this? He said, I just want to be in the business. And I'm thinking about how I got started in the business. I'll be your gopher. I'll work for free. Magic word. Now I didn't have to get anybody, you know, I had to get permission to have him in there, but they were happy as long as I didn't have to pay anybody. So it becomes my unpaid intern on the first integrated dance show in America. And um, this is a guy who grew up in Baltimore at the bottom of Television Hill. I mean, he rode his bike up there watching 
the uh, segregated Buddy Dean dance show. Now he's on the integrated Kirby Scott show. He's holding cue cards and going to the green room and bringing the fifth dimension in and, you know, stuff like that. 20 years later, I'm in my corporate office in Augusta, Georgia, and I get a package in the mail. It's a VCR in bubble wrap with a post-it on it. Mr. Confer, a.k.a. Kirby Scott, I hope you remember me. I used to be your assistant. I know you'll recognize all the characters. Your friend, John Waters. That's Hairspray. Baltimore, 1962. You're looking good. The heyday of hairdos and hairdos. We shall overcome someday. Not with that hair, you won't. No matter what you've heard, we are going to teach the white children how to do the birth. The new comedy from John Waters. It's way beyond Greece. It's like a, a fairy tale. Didn't know it then. Didn't know it until, you know, looking back on it. It's like, I, to this day, I say to myself, did that all really happen? Crazy shit. This is an Air Check Rewind. Season one, Danny Bonaducci. So I got him in the car and we started going fairly fast. Not as fast as I could, but pretty fast. And he kept saying things like, see, see. I mean, he looked scared. But he goes, see, see, I'm not screaming. I'm not screaming. We come around the last loop, and there's some lady pushing a baby carriage, which I then hit. <laughs> he starts flipping out, screaming, and he's out of his mind. At the time, it was my wife with a doll in the carriage. Air Check, a podcast about radio's personality from radio personalities. Seasons one and two available now on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Station ownership, the beginnings. How did that start for you? Well, let me let me say this about that. Um, I'm reading a book about me and my partner. My partner, since we were 13 years old, best friends. Uh, he retired from radio 20 plus years ago. Uh, his name is Paul Rothfuss, and his radio name was Paul Rogers. We met in junior high school. He's written a book called Wiggles, Winks, and Wizards. Wiggles, Winks, and Wizards would not be possible without the boyhood pledge and the rich on-air life of Paul, Emperor Rogers Rothfuss, and Kirby, Kirby Scott, Confer. And it's all about the early days of building our company, the first 50 stations that we did, uh, and how we how we decided using all the tricks I learned from the Art Carlsons about branding and you know what I had just learned by osmosis, you know, in the business uh, that we built our radio group. At age 18, Kirby and I made a vow: someday we're going to own a radio station together. Well, the vow was top of mind for us for many years. Because of the vow, during our years on the air, we always paid close attention to station managers and sales managers. We'd apprenticed ourselves to these good people and were privileged to see firsthand what worked and what didn't. The key to success for these stations and to their advertisers lay in the ability to get noticed. Getting noticed and doing so in ways that were easy for folks to remember and enjoy is the main reason for the success that Kirby and I were to achieve. If you really want to know how the nuts and bolts of how we built that radio chain, it's a quick read. In two hours, I've, I've read 40% uh, of the book already. But it's the early days, and it's the basics of what works in branding and audience relationships. It's real 
nuts and bolts down to earth stuff that people are always going to be people. And some of the stuff that we forget today because we're trying to be so cool and so digital that we forget that they're just flesh and blood like us out there. Here's the formula for our success, if such a formula exists. Get noticed, hire and train great people, and then get the hell out of their way. Take your radio station, read your business out of the studio, read your building, and get it into the community, literally. Keep things interesting and enjoyable for your listeners. Read your customers or clients. And where radio is concerned, when things are calm, keep it interesting and fun. But when there's an emergency, dedicate the station to providing information 24-7 until things get back to normal. Believe it or not, uh, we would do free burgers and free hot dogs and balloons and so forth at uh, remotes. That works. It still works. Yep. Because people still have kids. Talking about our mascots and mascots that I invented and my partner and I invented together and in Wiggles, Winks, and Wizards, you'll discover, deal by sometimes crazy deal, how we built our company from an AM-FM combo in Williamsport, Pennsylvania to, well, you'll see. I love Philly. There's nothing like being in a major market. I've had that. Yeah. But we lusted for a long time to own a state. We said, you know, if we could ever have a market that we really dominated, it would be Wilmington, Delaware. So we buy WSTW. This is just last fall. Today's When we buy it, we buy it from the ultimate seller. And I've learned to identify the ultimate seller. It can be an engineer who doesn't know anything about advertising, marketing, programming, or promotion. But you really you want to buy them from newspapers. Because if there's a company that owns radio stations that doesn't have a clue, it's going to be a newspaper company. <laughs> and they have, and it's the mighty, you, you guys probably have heard of Steinman, Mighty Steinman Company. Yeah. And, um, you know, they've been billionaires since the 1700s, since they came to Lancaster, Pennsylvania and got the first, it's one of the first five newspapers in America. Okay. But they finally decided that they were going to get liquid. Let's get some money in. So, and knowing that values were down, my partner and I said, it's, it's, our, it's our dream chance. We're going to go for this. And we get a country station. We get the country station and we get the big news talker in town. We said, this is good. So we'll have all the stations except the one Beasley station. And we like those odds. We'll take that. Anyway, we make the deal. And I, in my research, called my partner Donald up. He's my financial brains and partner in the company. We've learned so much from each other. We're 40 years together and never had a fight, if you can believe that. I said, Donald, have they ever mentioned the stations down in Milford and Ocean City? That strip from, you know, to, to Rehoboth and Ocean? He said, no. Do they have some? I said, they certainly do. They have, they have five stations down there. I didn't know that. So on the next conversation, he said, you know, my partner said, you have some stations down. And they said, yeah, but they're losing money. And, you know, we can't value them the way you, we valued Wilmington, which makes you know a lot of money. And we didn't figure you'd be, you'd be interested. And he said, well, what would you want for them? I said, well, hey, we'll, give them to, we'll make you a deal on those. Do you really want these? I said, yes, Donald, I want it. I want it because I know what I know we'll find something great to do because they're a newspaper. <laughs> so we get in the car and we drive down. Have you boys ever been to Milford, Delaware? Yeah. Yes. Okay. I've never been there. I've been, you know, to all the ocean places, but I've never been up that point of that part of the peninsula before. Out, it's out of my bailiwick. We drive into Milford, Delaware, and we're driving around. We make the deal. We have never been there, and Donald makes the deal. Now we're going to own this. We've got the contract in the FCC. I said we need to go down there and see what's going on. So we drive down. And we're driving around town and we go by this huge plant. And Dell said, what's that? I said, I don't know, Dell's got a big sign. I'll go around the block. We go around, we drive by slowly. Headquarters, Purdue Chicken. Yep, yep. Oh, I said, Donald, let me, and we continue to, he's driving. 
I said, let me do some Googling. It's the chicken capital of the United States. More chickens in one county than I don't care. It's Tyson, forget it. Purdue owns the crown. And that county of 240,000 people, which has just grown in 10 years by 40,000 people, that county is the chicken capital. I said, Donald, the formats of the stations are top 40 and there is an ESPN and the two FMs. I said, and the good one they've got because the newspaper figured they want to do ESPN. That's because they, they like ESPN. He said, you know, Donald, they got a country in Dover. They got a country in Ocean City, but this county doesn't have one of its own. Neither of those signals penetrate buildings here. This is this is slam dunk. He said, what are you going to do? I said, be the chicken. <laughs> the chicken. Chicken 101. This is WCHK, Milford, Georgetown, home of the mighty chicken. Chicken 101, yeah! The mighty chicken. (laughs) Then I start looking into call letters, and of course, all the the CKNs and everything that would be chicken. It's in Chicago. And like nobody, they're not giving those call letters up. But I kept looking and I see an AM in Canton, Georgia, a little town of a couple thousand people. It's a daytimer. And I see that it's owned by a gentleman that I had met in Augusta, Georgia 30 years ago. So I call him up and I said, I, you don't remember me? He said, he said, sir, I remember you. He said, mm-hmm. you were sucking all the money out of the market. And I was just trying to make a living. I said, well, as I had researched, I said, well, you've done pretty well since you have all the big stations in Columbus, Georgia now. And I said, so you've done very well. I said, well, thank you. Uh, What can I do for you? I said, well, what is this station you have in Canton, Georgia? He said, oh, he said, it's nothing. He said, I I got Hispanic on it, but, you know, it doesn't make any money and it's it's not going to ever be anything. He said, you don't want it. I said, no, I I really don't want to buy it. But I was wondering, would you like to share the call letters with me? He said, is that legal? (laughs) I said, it is if you sign a paper. He said, well, basically, in a nice way, he said, what's in it for me? And I said, how about $5,000? And you'll be the AM and I'll be the FM up in, in uh, Milford, Delaware. I told him what I was going to do with him. And so that's how we became WCHK, the chicken in Milford. Good morning, guys, the rooster. He's just one fuck away on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So go follow him. Rooster in the group. Disclaimer, he acts really slow and posts a lot of stupid stuff. Rooster in the group on Chicken Country. Chicken 1013. <laughs> and we call it the Mighty Chicken, which is a little bit of a riff on uh, the old Chicken Man, which was... Yeah. Uh, you guys ever hear of the Chicken Man I remember series? I Chicken Man. Yeah, Bok Bok, Bok Chicken Man. <laughs> He's everywhere. He's he, everywhere. He sure is. Now. Another exciting episode in the life of the most fantastic crime fighter the world has ever known. So, uh, so anyway, it's the Mighty Chicken 101 in Milford, Delaware, and, and we've got you know a seven-foot rooster costume. They love it, they like it, and besides, they turn it on, and it's them instead of a, a newspaper's vision from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, as to what that, that never even went down there. You know, they just, they got those stations in a deal and um, they figured we're going to dominate Delaware. As a matter of fact, they one of the best FMs in that group is, is still News Talk. And it's, there are only two Class A's in Rehoboth and they're both News Talk. This is an Air Check Rewind. Season one, Neil Mursky. I get a call from the Warner Brothers guy, the promo guy, that, hey, Van Halen wants to come. They're in town. The show is on a Saturday night. They wanted to come by the radio station to, you know, not that the show wasn't already sold out. They just wanted to have some fun on the radio. So, of course, biggest band on the planet at that point. I said, sure. 
The band showed up. They were obnoxious. They were drunk. They were stoned. They just came in. It wasn't even an interview. I would ask questions. They would ignore me. I'm sure it was very entertaining to the listeners. But boy, going through it was not pleasant. Air Check, a podcast about radio's personality from Radio Personalities. Seasons 1 and 2 available now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. You can also listen on your smart speaker. Just say, Alexa, play Air Check Podcast or OK Google, play Air Check Podcast. There you are creating a radio station called The Chicken, but I want to know about Froggy. Tell that story. The genesis of Froggy is that I had discovered the magic of an animal logo at a time when everybody was Z103 and Q102. And how that happened was it spawned the most serious disagreement I ever had with my partner who just wrote that book that I'm telling you about, <laughs> Paul Rothfuss. But we, we had a little disagreement because we bought a station in Bowling Green, Kentucky, 100,000 watts mm. and no country FM. And I'm going, this is good. This is going to be good. So Paul said, what are we going to call it? And I came back with, Paul, I've got the call letters, W-B-V-R. And I said, Paul's the beaver. The beaver, 96.7. Oh, my God. We can't do that. We can't. He said, it's, 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 it's Bible Belt. It's Christian. I said, no, wait a minute, Paul. I don't know what beaver you're thinking about. But this is just a fun beaver with buck teeth. You know, and it's going to be W, beaver face with the buck teeth, BVR. I said, it will scream beaver. Don't worry about it. I said, the branding is immediate and it's unforgettable. I'm not going to have anything to do with this. If he said, it's on you. If we do this, he said, you tell everybody I want anything to do with that idea. And I'm waiting to see in the book that I'm reading that I'm only 40% through whether he ever gets to the beaver story. So I, <laughs> right now I'm all on Twitter to find out if he's going to tell the true story about it. The Beaver 96.7. Anyway, that is a background, happens in the 80s, actually, early 80s, right, 81, 82. In 1983, I get divorced. My first wife and I had been together since we were 18, had three kids. She said, I don't want to be Mrs. Radio anymore. It's too crazy. I don't like those people. You won't do anything that's sane. You're going to go broke. I don't have any stability, and I have to go. Help me get a college education, which I did. And she got a, a, a master's and a PhD in child development and went on to a great career. And my, my three kids all say to me, you know, dad, it was the best thing that could ever happen. But now I'm alone. She gave me the gate, really. And I hook up with a radio girl in one of my stations who has a seven-year-old boy who has never known his father. He was abandoned when he was less than a year old. And I start dating her and we fall in love. And I ask for her hand in marriage. And she's from Reading. So it's the culture thing, you know. Mm -hmm. We both speak that Pennsylvania Dutch, and we both eat lemon and bologna. So what can I tell you? <laughs> I mean, it was it was love at first chomp. Yeah. We get married, but the boy is he has problems because he doesn't know. He doesn't first. He doesn't trust men because she's had a lot of boyfriends and they come and go, and he's afraid he's going to lose her to any. You know, who are all these people? And you know, and why are they here? So we're married, and now I have a seven-year-old son, and I adopt him officially. And I said to her, I said, you know, Jude. I need to I need to bond with him with an unforgettable experience that he will never ever and he will always look back on. What would that be? I said, I want to go to Africa. I want wow. to take the three of us to Africa for a two week safari. Oh my God, it's it's gonna be great. So we go. And here's where the here's where the chance of life comes in and you never know. You never know who you're gonna to meet tonight, tomorrow, the next day. 
how it's going to affect you and your your life and, and, and your family. So I've got a new family. Anyway, I want something really great for him. We get over there and the tour company, they divide us up into vehicles, room for five people. And out of a hat, Kirby and Judy and Keith get in this bus. Kathy and Steve Kirk, you're going to be with Kirby and Judy in their bus. Kathy and Steve Kirk, don't know them from Adam. Kathy Kirk is the head of Imagineering of Walt Disney Company <laughs> at that time. Mm. Steve Kirk, her husband, is the vice president of audio animatronics, and it's his team that builds all the talking presidents and the Michael Jacksons that do the moonwalk and the dinosaurs and blah, blah, blah. And wow. there we are for two weeks in a Land Rover together, having the time of our lives. Uh-huh. And the weirdness of it is, is at this point in time, I have just started within the last couple of years, a collection of cells from the Disney movies. That was the first outside of radio. I never had a hobby. Hmm. That's the first hobby I ever had. So I'm going, tell me, what is it like to work there? How did you get that job? We were the last class that Walt recruited himself before he died. And I'm asking them all these questions. And they're, and they're telling me, I said, why do you do this? Why do you do that? And I'm hearing basically what you get at Disney University when they're teaching you marketing. It's the philosophy of the company. It's never mind what dad thinks. Uh, it's all about the mom, mom and the kids. And don't worry about it. Go with mom and the kids. Dad will come along. I just learned so much in those two. We get to the end of the two weeks and Kathy Kirk, the head of Imagineering, by the way, they call themselves the Munchkins and they still do today because we are best, best, best friends now for 35 years. Wow. Every year we have traveled the world together as a result of that trip. But now we get to the end of the trip and she said, you know, I know you I know you you love radio so much and you're so excited about all this, but what's your favorite station? Is it that one in Houston? I said, No, I that's my high billing station. Yeah, I like that station. Well, how about the one in um oh I think of another market at the time. I said, No, she said, What is it? I said, It's the beaver. <laughs> and she looked at me and she said, There's a station called the beaver? Why would it be called why would you call a radio station the beaver? I said, Well, it's a long story. But believe me, it's a country music station and there are beavers out in the country. It's pretty much, it's simple. She said, do you have anything with the logo on it? I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I, I have I have a keychain here and it's, it's a cutout of the beaver logo. She looked at it and she said, did you make this? I said, yeah. She said, this is, this is good. <laughs> it was like, it still touches me because she said, you're gifted. You, you have a feel for this. Unfortunately, what? She said, unfortunately, you don't have a mnemonic device. I said, I don't? Oh, what is it? She said, close your eyes. Hi, kids, this is Mickey. She said, open your eyes now. I said, yeah. She said, what did you see? I said, this is childish. This, this, I feel stupid. She said, oh, no, I assure you, this is not childish. She said, what did you see? I said, I saw three circles. I saw Mickey, the Mickey Mouse. She said, uh-huh. She said, now in 5,000 years, when they dig up, when the archaeologists are digging it up in 5,000 years, they're going to find this. In every town, on on every continent, they're going to find that logo and they're going to say, it must have been their religion. <laughs> it's, it's everywhere. She said, that's branding. She said, the mnemonic device brings up the logo and the logo brings up the mnemonic device, but you don't have one. Mm. So that that ends up with, we go to the airport and you know how you go, you meet people on the trip and you go, hey, we got to get together. Hey, if you're ever up in Fond du Lac, you know, you look us up. Oh yeah, we're, we're up there. <laughs> she said, well, you know, we live in Long Beach. If you ever get to the West Coast, I didn't have any station on the West Coast. Everything I had was east of the Mississippi. If you ever get out there, 
give me a call because we would just love to have this friendship continue. I said, well, okay. Took down her cell phone number and her address and everything. And in the next six months, a bankrupt 50,000 watt station in San Bernardino comes up for sale. And I mean, it's bankrupt and it goes on the courthouse steps to the highest bidder. And Donald goes and bids it. And he's the only one with a, and, and he gets outbid, but he's the only one that has a certified check. And we get the station and it's owned by an evangelist, 89 years old, and his manager embezzled it right into bankruptcy. And so now we get this station, but I mean, this baby is on a mountain. It's on one of those San Gabriel mountains and it's like all the way to downtown Los Angeles is a killer. So I march into California in the plane, call Kathy Kirk on the phone. I said, Kathy, she said, where are you? I said, I'm in San Bernardino. She said, what are you doing here? I said, I bought a station. She said, get down here, get down here. We'll have dinner, get down here tonight. So I go down. She said, tell me all about it. I said, well, here it is. It's KFRG. This is KFRG San Bernardino. She said, I get it. It's going to be a frog. I said, not just a frog. It's going to be K frog. She said, what's the mnemonic device? I said, well, I have two of them. I said, Segwaying Records, it's going to be ribbit. That's all. <laughs> nothing, nothing but a ribbit. I said, but on the hour, I have the frog horn. She said, how does that go? I said, it goes, <clears throat> KFRG, San Bernardino. Froggy. I sold it to CBS for 35 mil. Wow. Uh, wow. End of story. <laughs> uh, it was, you know, a, a, million, a million stories along the way in there, but that's basically. However, one story that's going to lead to what you asked about, which is, how did that get to be froggy? Um, I mean, San Bernardino went from uh, bankruptcy and maybe fifty thousand dollars in building to three million in the first year. And by the second year, we were doing six, seven million dollars a year. It was so huge. It was the first double-digit uh, Nielsen rating um, in the Inland Empire because it had always just been, you know, ones and twos for LA stations. And we were doing what we called live-action broadcasts. Today we call it live on location, but that's we called them live-action broadcasts. And that is we have a mascot. And the mascot's name, because we thought we were clever, we found out in focus groups it was not clever because it was a little bit too fast for the room. And that is we named the mascot Jeremiah B. Frog. Mm. <laughs> and when we asked people, tell us about the DJs, they were confused and they thought Jeremiah B. Frog was a DJ. Then in aided recall, we say, well, how about Jeremiah was a bullfrog? And they'd go, dun, dun, dun. In other words, with a musical relationship, mm. they could relate that, oh, I get it. Jeremiah B. Frog. Oh, cute. They didn't get it. So now we have an appearance at the mall, and this is prior to selfies and cell phone cameras. One of the gimmicks was Jeremiah B. Frog is going to be down at the Cucamonga uh, Mall uh, this Saturday from 10 to noon. Get your kid's picture taken with them. Free. I said, I want to go see this because we had done it in a couple of places and it was huge. So I go down there and the moms are lined up down the mall with these toddlers. I mean, kids as old as 10 or 11 or 12. But you, had to, you had to be there with your parent. I think it was the mall insisted on that. I, I'm, and I know why. Anyway, <laughs> I'm standing there watching this going, this is so great. I'm just, I'm so proud. And I'm standing here and Jeremiah B. Frog is like seven feet tall is there. And the kids are getting their pictures taken with them. But I'm behind them. And over here is a potted plant. And out from behind the potted plant comes a four-year-old girl. She's inching over. She's inching, inching, inching. Now she's right up to him. And she reaches out and she grabs the, his trousers on his costume. And she starts pulling on Mr. Froggy, Mr. Froggy, please, please, can I be in it, Mr. Froggy? She wants him to be Mr. Froggy, but it's too late. Oh. So we renamed him Mr. K-Frog. 
which I didn't like very much. But six months later, a bankrupt radio station comes for sale. And I mean, dead bankrupt in Altoona, Pennsylvania, with the only 50,000 watt station. The only country music station is an AM station. A local radio station giving people a helping hand this holiday season. Froggy 98 is preparing for the 43rd annual Christmas Carol Foundation. Every year, the station asks the listeners for letters on who needs some help during the holidays. 12 weeks and I, I find the call letters WFGY, and I said, finally, I've got the mascot, the image, the call letters, the whole thing in one. It's Froggy. Where there's country, there's Froggy 98. <laughs> That's how Froggy got born. And there's a million Froggy stories after that because we've had about, I don't know, 40 or 50 of them. We still have about a dozen. <laughs> this episode of Air Check continues right after this shameless begging for your radio stories. You got one? More than one? Take in what we can get. Email aircheckme at gmail.com to join Rich DeSisto and Paul Kelly on Air Check, a podcast about radio's personality from radio personalities. You have obviously climbed many rungs up the broadcasting ladder to get where you are, to be able to retire, obviously. Um, let's talk about the beginning. I mean, you're from Williamsport, Pennsylvania, 15 years old, and you get to pick the call letters for a brand new radio station. Walk us through that a little bit. Uh, I'm, I'm from a broken home. My dad was gone when I was 10 years old, and, and I got a job being a car hop in a drive-in restaurant when I was 15 by forging my birth certificate because you weren't allowed to have a job till you were 16. Mm. You had to have working <laughs> papers. The thing that I found out in the drive-in restaurant was uh, the more cars I served, the more tips I got. So that was my introduction to the business side of radio. But I loved performing in front of the people, so much so that I would do gags and jokes and stuff, and pretty soon people would say, uh, when they drove in, another car hop would run up to the car and would say to them, um, you know, may I help you? And they'd say, no, no, uh, we'll wait for Kurt. <laughs> and uh, the joke became the, the other car hops that were smarter than me made fun of me and laughed and said, oh, yeah, there's curb service. <laughs> but, um, in my it, Within six months, I was making uh, more money than my mother. My mother worked at the at the paper plate factory in Williamsport, and she made $49 a week take home. And uh, the first week that I made over 50 bucks, most of which was in tips, and it was, of course, tax-free, <laughs> that, that was a big moment in my life. But I'm, I'm still not 16. What I'm doing at that point in time is laying awake all night, every night, to the point where I can't even get up to go to school in the morning. My, my mother is throwing ice water on my head at 7 a.m. saying, you know, you've got to get up and go to school. <laughs> but the reason why I couldn't get up to go to school was because I was listening to the beginning of Top 40 Radio out of the big AM stations in Buffalo and in Nashville in particular. My, my hero was a jock named uh, George Lorenz, who was the hound dog on WKBW in Buffalo, which was heard at that time in 23 states. And in Philadelphia, was number two in the ratings. This was just about the hottest jock on the East Coast. George Lorenz. Let's see, let's see. Yeah, I'm the man. I just wanted to be him. I was like, you know, it's nine o'clock and it's time to rock. The hounds are rock. The hounds are rock. Ow! Yeah, right here at Hound Dog in Time. You're listening to WKBW. 
And so anyway, every night, all night, I'm pretending I'm, I've got the transistor under my pillow and I'm listening to, and I'm going, I'm rehearsing that bit. I'm, I'm redoing that bit like I'm on the radio. I'm already pretending. <laughs> then I see an ad in the local newspaper, a uh, local man gets construction permit for new radio station. And I had already, at that point in those six months, I had already been around it. Both of the other stations in town who very politely told me that I come back when I have some experience, you know how that shtick goes. But here's a new guy with a new radio station. So uh, I went over and I stood. Uh, well, the, the, the article in the newspaper said the um, station is going to be located in the second floor of the police station in South Williamsport. And I went over there and it was nothing but an empty storage room. And I said to the lady, well, where's the radio station? She said, well, the man who's going to have the radio station, it's not it's not there yet. I said, well, when does he come? She said, well, we don't know. Uh, he comes, he has a key. He comes whenever he wants to. So I said, well, where does he come to? She said, in the back of the building, you'll see there's, there's a double door back there. I said, can I go in? She said, no, 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 you cannot go in there. So I went and I sat on the concrete steps in front of those double doors at the back of the building. And it was kind of like Field of Dreams. Wait here and he will come. He will come. <laughs> and for two weeks, he did not come. <laughs> but I went every day after school, religiously. And one day, the car rolls up in a cloud of smoke. And it's like an old Pontiac from the 40s loaded up with wires and tubes and boxes. And I said, oh, my God, this has got to be the guy. <laughs> and he came up the walk and he said, uh, may I help you? And I said, are you Mr. Castleberry? He said, why, yes, I am. I said, well, I'm Kirby Confer, and I'm going to work for you. He said, I don't think so. <laughs> he said, I don't, I don't have any money to pay anybody anything. I'm going to build this by myself. I said, well, you don't have to pay me because I'm going to work for free. And I'll be here every day after school and every night and all day, Saturdays and Sundays, I'll work for free. He said, you realize it's going to take me a year to do this, to put this station on the air. I said, I don't care how long it takes. He said, and, and what do you want? I said, I just want one thing. When you go on the air, you're going to have to pay somebody something. I'll work for minimum wage. I'll be your nighttime jock. He never said yes, no, beans or baloney. And I followed him through the double doors and up the stairs into this godforsaken pit of an attic. <laughs> and I was in radio. I'm in. <laughs> and I worked for him for a year. And it to, to answer your question, I told you it'd be a long story. <laughs> At the end of the year, he said to me, Kirby, um, two things, uh, some good news and some bad news. Uh, the good news is we got our permission from the FCC to go on the air October 15th. Oh, Mr. Mr. Castleberry, I'm so excited. He said, yes, um, I, I understand that. And I just want you to know that all the work you have done, I have decided that you will be the first voice heard on the radio station. Wow. And we'll sign it on. Well, I'm like, I'm, sir, I can remember it vividly. I'm crying. I'm going, Mr. Castleberry, I, I can't believe, I don't, I can't, I don't, I wouldn't know what, but, but, but sir, well, what's the bad news? He said, well, we also got a citation from the FAA and our tower lights are burned out. <laughs> and as you know, our tower is right across the river from the Lycoming County Airport runway. We're not permitted to go on the air until I said, well, sir, you, you'll get those guys that change the lights. He yeah, said, those guys. Kirby, <laughs> if I had money to pay people to change the lights, he said, I would, I, I'd be paying you before I'd be paying them. I said, well, sir, I think I get what you're getting at, but I, 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 I don't know anything about it. He said, Kirby, have you ever climbed a ladder 
I said, yes, sir. He said, and this is just a ladder. It's just 160 rungs <laughs> and it's one bulb. And before I knew it, I had a screwdriver, which I learned because I didn't know. I had a Phillips head screwdriver, which he, he explained to me that this was different than the regular screwdriver. And just take out these two screws, tip tip that big red dome back, put the, put the bulb in and come down. And um, you know what? Honestly, I, I said to myself in a second, what if I don't do it? Will I, will I still be the first voice heard? on the station yes sir so i go up the tower i got the bulb in my right pocket and i've got the screwdriver in my left pocket i'm i'm choking up just just thinking about it so it's 160 (laughs) feet up but mr castleberry forgot to tell me one little thing Uh and i'm sure you gentlemen know this there are two different kinds of towers there are freestanding towers and there are guide towers (laughs) this is a guide tower with guy wires and guide towers move in the wind. Uh, and when I get to the top of it, I mean, at the bottom, it doesn't look like anything. You know, two feet this direction, two feet that direction, but that's four feet. And it's going back <laughs> and forth. And the wind is blowing. And for the first time, because when you're going up, you don't look down. You just go up. Yeah. But now I'm hugging this thing. Have you gentlemen ever hugged the porcelain goddess? Have you ever heard that phrase? I, I've heard of it. I never have. But this one time, I puked all over the top of this dome, this red dome, because I'm like, I don't know how I even got into this. But I, I get the thing over, get the flip, get the bulb in, and get down. And when I got down, I was so weak when I got off the last rung at the bottom of this. It must have been an hour later, scared to death. I just laid on the ground flat and looked up, and I said, and I remember saying to myself, you son of a bitch, I own you. I own you. And you know what? It owned me. And I knew I knew from that moment on, I would be in radio the rest of my life. But you asked me about the call letters, which is one of the most fun things of my life, especially at this point, because Dave, the owner, said, I have an idea for these call letters, and I think we should call it uh, W-I-L-L, like for Williamsport, because we had other call letters, but none of them said Williamsport. He said, but here's what you do. Here's the information you send in to the FCC, which is great, because today it's all... It's all digital data, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You send into the FCC and you apply for these call letters and then they send back to you and tell you whether you got them or not. So we go through his call letters, W-I-L-L, and the FCC comes back and reports to me that these call letters are wherever, some other Williamsburg, Virginia or wherever. And then he kicked back with the next one. And what's the next one? And I forget, but he had two or three rejections and this is taking about a month to get three, two or three of them rejected. And finally, I came up with uh, WMPT, which was another alliteration of it, which would be for Williamsport. Uh, They came back and those call letters were on the radio station until 1993. So in 1993, my original partner, my high school best friend and partner that started my chain of stations with me, Paul Rothfuss for Williamsport. At this point, I've gone on to other things and major markets and so forth. Paul started his company and he goes back and he buys that radio station. And one day in 1993, he calls me up and said, Kirby, I have something I have to send you. And uh, it's, I said, what is it? He said, I'll explain it all after you get it, you'll know. Call me when you get it. So that plaque arrives in bubble wrap and it says, this is to Kirby Confer on his 40th year in radio on October 15th, 1990, whatever it was. And this is a rung from the tower he climbed and I immediately called. I said, Paul, what, what, what are you doing? 
He said, Kirby, I tried because it was an AM station. And he had an FM at this point, and the AM was totally dead. And he couldn't even, he tried to give it away to religious outfits, and he couldn't even give it away. They all had their own little FM stations. He says, I'm beside myself. He said, I offered this station for $50,000 and no takers. He said, but the phone rang, and it was Little League Baseball. And they said, you know that land that you own down there in the swamp near the river? Would you would you consider selling it? He said, yeah, why would you want it? He said, well, because, you know, we need it for the parking lot for the Little League World Series because we don't have anywhere near the parking. Half a million dollars later, they took down wow. the tower. Paul Roth has kept a, a run for himself as a memory and sent me another one. <laughs> That day that it went down, the call letters were deleted, but the FCC stations decommissioned. The following day, I'm watching television in my town where I'd lived for 20 years in Baltimore, Maryland, and I see Maryland Public Television, WMPT, with our new call letters. This is Maryland Public Television, WMPT, Channel 22 Annapolis, and W62AY, Channel 62 Frederick. It's the day after 40 years in Williamsport, PA. And I watched them for the rest of the time that I lived in Baltimore. And every day I, I looked at it and I thought about the days of climbing the tower. So you asked me one question and I've screwed up your entire program. I'm well, I, I, actually, you have not, because I had no idea that you were going to tell me a ladder climbing story when I just decided to describe the industry of you've climbed many rungs up the broadcasting ladder and you went on with that. So thank you. It's a crazy, wonderful business, and I say more crazy and more wonderful than it's ever been. More challenging and more exciting than ever, really, right now. This is an Air Check Rewind, Season 2. Debbie Calton. I ended up staying in Philadelphia for 36 years, which is amazing to me, because Philadelphia can be tough, you know, on newcomers, you know. The fact that I was embraced over the years by tried and true, died-in-the-wolf Philadelphians, Philadelphians, <laughs> you know, really meant so and still means so much to me. Air Check, a podcast about radio's personality from radio personalities. Seasons 1 and 2 available now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. You can also listen on your smart speaker. Just say, Alexa, play AirCheck Podcast or OK Google, play AirCheck Podcast. Radio has been at this inflection point now for uh, some time. You know, digital becoming part of the way that it does business on and off the air. Sellers and programmers are now traveling down that path, which has been dictated by new technologies and their listeners' habits, or as they say in the digital space, their users' habits. And even before the pandemic, that path that you took, that Paul and I took to get into radio, it doesn't really exist today. I do a little mentoring and teaching at a media arts school. And of course, you're heavily involved with the National Radio Talent System, uh, where a branch of that bears your name at the Bloomsburg University of Pennsylvania. So talk a little bit about that venture and how the Confort Talent Institute is keeping radio top of mind and how you're providing that new path for the younger generation to get into radio. Well, it's just that it's at my age, it's the great joy of my life because I don't think there's a bigger need that we have in broadcasting than keeping these kids interested in it. They're interested, but they just don't know how the whole digital revolution and all the rest of this ties into what we do. And we're painted as, you know, the old media, you know, traditional media, et cetera. And they have no, when we get them at the Institute and we have all the digital people in there and we show them our videographers and everything, they go, I, I didn't know you did that. Um, I got into it eight years ago when uh, Dan Valley invited me to go down to North Carolina. I, I had 35 kids uh, in the class. 
I was supposed to do 90 minutes as the keynote speaker. And after I did my 90 minutes, they were still going, and then what do you do? And then what? And then what? And I was there for three hours because that's how excited they get when they really realize what all there is to all and how much, and the other thing about it is this, how much fun and how much real life connection there is. They have this idea that you're kind of behind the microphone, you're kind of an announcer, you know, and when they find out, you know, but I tell them things like, you know, Ryan Seacrest and Jimmy Kimmel were on Jimmy Kimmel's show and I wasn't even paying attention and I watched and I saw, they're laughing it up. I turned up the volume and they were talking about how they got into radio together and what was their first job. They were mascots on rate for radio stations. Uh, you know, and you don't know where you're going to go in this business. You can go any, you go anywhere. You're going to go where you think you want to go and wherever you have a passion for. That's what's going to happen. I love the Institute and we'll be back. Uh, at Bloomsburg University next year. Matter of fact, we've had several meetings about it already. Talk a little bit more about the national talent system. Well, the, the, the national radio talent system is a format developed by Dan Valley, who's a professor at uh, Appalachian State University. Radio consultant. And a, a well-known radio consultant uh, who basically knows everybody in the business. And he has a staff of people that put together the um, participants, along with, uh, in, in my particular case, at Bloomsburg University, I have uh, two people, one at Bloomsburg, one at Susquehanna, that uh, are involved with recruiting the people, getting them to apply. They have to make a, a, a written piece uh, in, in the application about why they want to do this and for the princely sum of $400 they get to meet the creme de la creme in the business for 10 solid days mix with them talk with them ask them questions it's just a wonderful experience we have placed so many of them some of uh, we we also have speakers from my own company they get great people in from from big stations we've had the you know the WIP sports guys so sales programming marketing We'll bring the videographers in from some of our stations and show them the stuff that we do and that we sell digital and how the digital works and how the digital promotion works with the radio promotion, how they work so great together, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a very overall encompassing experience. Yeah, my experience with uh, what I'm involved with with Connecticut School of Broadcasting, it's it's a really uh, rewarding thing to see um, when when our students do graduate and they move on into their careers, to be able to be working with them in the radio stations that I work under in the cluster in Philadelphia. So it's nice to see some of my former students being co-workers, you know, as they move forward. But talk a little bit about how the system, uh, how, it, how it started. I, there's a Penn State relationship here. Talk a little bit about the beginning. You know, there again, how things work out. And you, have, you go, oh, this is the end of the world. All this work. And I was so upset because I was, I was turned on. I got really excited after doing Appalachian State, seeing these kids. The preceding five years, I had spoken to the the graduating communications class at Penn State. Easy for us because we, you know, we're the flagship for Penn State sports. So we have an in there. Uh, I went to the dean and said, let me tell you about the Radio Talent Institute. I think it would be perfect. And uh, I'll head the thing up and it's, we'll have it right here in State College. What a perfect thing. He got all excited about it. Uh, just one thing. Well, we have to run it by some people. How's it going? Well, we got it approved by so-and-so, but now we have to take it to the next level. And you won't believe this, but this went on for uh, about a year and a half. And I said, how are we doing? Almost. We're, you know, we just, we just have one more person to sign off on this. And they're having a meeting next Tuesday. And so then the dean, Dean Anderson, calls me and says, it's done. Ready to sign the contract. Uh, be here 9 a.m. next Friday. So at 9 a.m., we are there. I've got the president of the company, Dan Valley up from North Carolina, and myself. Everybody's pretty 
approve the contract. All we got to do is sign it. And it's nine. It's nine thirty. It's ten o'clock. And the dean comes in and says, of the longest face I've ever seen. I don't. I just don't know how to tell you this, but we're not doing it. What? But gee, that's exactly what I said. <laughs> Probably even a little more. I said, no, you're, you're kidding me. What 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 happened? He said, well, S- Sandusky happened. He said, and uh, you just have to understand. The thing I will never forget is this university moves on football. He said, today we got a $5 million cancellation from State Farm. Uh, he said, it's $60 million a year in football and we don't have it. All programs, anything proposed is shelved. I said, well, how long? He said, honestly, I could t- I could tell you a bunch of stuff, but until we get recruitment back, minimum of four years. I said, you realize I'm 72 years old. I said, you know, I only buy ripe bananas. Give me a <laughs> give me a break. I can't I can't wait four years. He said, it's out of my hands. So I was like really disturbed. Sure. And you know what they say about the Lord never closes one door without opening a window or opening another one. Mm-hmm. Couple couple months went by, and I said to my daughter Kristen Cantrell, I said, "How's our how's how's my granddaughter doing at Bloomsburg University?" She said, "She's loving it over there." I said, "What is, what is, what is she doing?" She said, "Well, she's got a job in the administrative office." I said, "No kidding. Where is that?" So I get the address. And I said, "The next time I'm in PA, I'm going over. I'll surprise her." So I went over. She said, "Grampy, Dean Brown wants to meet you." Who's Dean Brown? She said, he's the head of our communications department. And he's he's heard about you. I said, I don't know what he heard. About. Why would he hear about me? She said, well, he's he's into the whole radio and he knows all about that. I said, great. So I went into his office at uh, two o'clock and at 4.30, I told him the whole story with Sandusky. And he said, why wouldn't we do it here? <laughs> and uh, so we're, in, we're seven years into it. And I had complete backing of the university. And uh, I've helped them put a whole new digital studio in their radio station. I got them to give up the call letters WBUQ and change it to WHSK Husky 91. <laughs> and, you know, teaching them a little branding along the way. So I, I'm into it. I, I love it. I, I love to see the look. It's just like any kindergartner. When you see that look on their face, they get it. You know, that that's... That's all I need at this point. Well, you're a guy, obviously, with marketing ideas, the froggy brand, the chicken brand, the beaver. I would love to see that type of thinking on a much grander scale, right? Can we get all of the smart people in radio to band together across media companies and create a kind of radio board of directors, a team of minds that strategize for the industry as a whole, for all of radio to benefit, just as each of them do respectively for their own brands, just like you did for your brands through the years, and then Use the digital tools that radio sells to advertisers for its own benefit and tell its story as to why radio still matters. I would love to hear your perspective on that. So what do you think? What can what could radio do? Because we're not going to get television to do it for us. Right. So what can we do ourselves? What we've done, not as successfully or as much as I've wanted to, is but for the national radio talent system, we make up individual commercials. For our own, for the stations that are involved, all the forever stations in Pennsylvania. You know, have you ever dreamed about being on the radio? How did Howard Stern do it? Would you like to know how? You know, just pick pick who their idols are, and say, you know, if you want to be a star, you got to meet the stars. Uh, it's a radio talent system, and oftentimes we use. Uh, you know, I've got a little protege named Gabriella Loyello. She came to Bloomsburg, and uh, I could tell right away she's got it. And uh, as I got to know her, she said, what would I be? I said, I don't know. What do you think you would be? She said, well, look, I'm an Italian girl from a poor section of Philadelphia. My family doesn't think I might, you know, it's the biggest thing that's ever happened to me is I got to go to Bloomsburg University. Um, but she said, <laughs> I think my dream would be I go to work for PBS in Philadelphia. 
you know, back at, maybe I could get a job in the office at PBS. I said, no, 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 you're Gabby. I, I am? You're Gabby. Don't you get it? This is radio. You're not gonna, we're not going to waste you there. She, as she blossomed in the Institute, a neat thing happened in Altoona. Not a good thing for the, the morning lady sidekick. Uh, her father died, and she's from New York State, and she announced after like five years as the morning sidekick, I have to go home. My dad's dying. She leaves, and the job is open. The morning guy, a great guy named Jojo, who's a star in our company, wanted to do his own auditions live on the air. <laughs> So they got it in the trades. They got the tapes in. He picked out the top five. I've got 18 people applied for the job. He picked out the top five and gave them a morning show with him and told the people they could vote. And she goes down and interviews for it. She'd never been on the radio, but she's a natural personality. She's bubbly. She's bubbly, you know, with a lead like JoJo just started to come out. Anyway, uh, in the voting, she's tied with another girl. And JoJo doesn't pick her. He picks the other one because they're both from Jersey. <laughs> and really connects to her. Mm -hmm. You know, but she hadn't been there, Gabby was going to get the job. She didn't get the job. However, and I and one of the things that I preach at the institute is you have to understand, I've been a radio gypsy all my life. I go where the opportunity is. It's a sacrifice for the family, a sacrifice for my kids. It hasn't been easy, uh, but it's been very, very rewarding in every way that I can think of. Anyway, I preached that and she said, where else can I go? Within a month, the midday opens in an underprivileged market called Cumberland, Maryland. A nice little market. There's about 100,000 people there, and there's only two Class Bs. So we have the contemporary, the rock, the we have, we have the whole market. The midday comes open on Big Froggy. Big Froggy. I said, what would you think about that? She said, I don't know anything about country music. For middays, you got to know something about it. For mornings, I could just ham it up with JoJo, but I don't. I said, you know, go down, try it anyway. She did. And she fell in love, and they fell just inside the station, fell in love with her. She gets the midday gig. Several months go by, and she called me up. She was choked up. She said, something happened to me this morning. They told me I made the right decision. Oh, first of all, I have to tell you, I said, you know, you have to take a froggy name. So she became Polly Wog. Okay. <laughs> she became, which is one of the first, I didn't tell you that part of the Disney story. You know, when, when Kathy Kirk said, come on down, I want to hear all about it. And I told her everything. Part two of that little dinner was, I'm in her house in Long Beach with she and her husband, and we're talking about K-Frog. And then she said to me, who are the cast of characters? I said, Kathy, what, what, what are you talking about? She said, Kirby, Kirby, it's a theme park on the radio. It's a nice, clean place for mom and the kids where nothing bad can happen. They're never going to hear anything on a, a person will know just instinctively that they're not going to hear anything about bitches or hoes or any bad thing that might embarrass them in front of their 10 year old daughter while they're driving in the car, not on a cave rock. She said, it's a theme park. It's clean. It's friendly. It's mom and kid friendly. And by two o'clock in the morning, the morning team was named Tad Pole and Polly Walk <laughs> on K-Frog. So that's the other part of the branding. They started right out with, when I tell you that I owe a lot to those people and that we've, we've traveled the whole world together since then, our trip to Canada on the train for this summer was canceled, but that's the first time in 35 years we haven't gone away together. The whole Disney marketing uh, brilliance, it, you know, it, it, that really does spill over into radio. I mean, you mentioned something earlier in our conversation about if you focus on the moms and the kids, dads will follow. And that is so key. It's just, it's vision. All I did was hook on my little wagon to figuring out how we could, how I could take the best of their tenants uh, that I learned from the munchkins 
and, and use it in radio. In promotions, if you read that book by my partner, you'll see that our, the whole tenet of how we built the company is in there, but the wiggles, winks, and wizards. But he talks about the fact that we learned from our, the owner of the station in Annapolis, where we were both working and learning. What he said was, it's all about the ideas. It's all about the ideas. You, you, we don't go into clients and we don't we don't sell them a schedule or an availability. No, what we do is we, go and we sell them something that has magic. It's about the pixie dust. It's about the ideas. Walt said, I'm going to take this story. Oh, I, I should tell you that there were other comments that I heard in the thing. It's like, uh, uh, Walt, um, she she dies. Kids are going to be totally scared. That's not ever going to. I mean, everything they could think of that wouldn't work. But in the end, he said, okay, just trust me. The the Disney thing is, as, as you can see, changed my life. So, you know, if I've had any success, I'm just a, I'm just a hanger on. That's all. Yeah, the engagement, those experiences, that's what it's all about. Right, the ideas. Mm-hmm. I can't stop. Radio is the best. Well, Kirby, I really enjoyed hearing you tell your stories. They are amazing. You are part of so many cool and memorable things. Naming a radio station call letters and climbing that tower at 15 years old. Emceeing the Beatles. Getting that sneak peek at what we've come to call the British Invasion. Hosting your own TV dance show. And becoming a successful radio owner. Very inspiring. I need to read Paul's book, too. Wiggles, Winks, and Wizards to learn more. Because it's always a learning experience, right? Radio continues to evolve. You've touched on its growth during your 60 years here. Uh, but the common thread is still the foundational stuff that you talk about. The ideas, the engagement, and those experience. And they're always going to be something to build from. Really enjoyed this conversation. And again, thanks for taking the time to sit on this air check session. Well, I've had a great time too, guys. Thanks for letting me get this off my chest after, <laughs> after these 60 years in the business. Kirby, again, thank you for your time. Um, we hope that all the uh, the listeners that check out this air check session, will, whether they be fellow owners or general managers, program directors, up and coming air talent, uh, will enjoy this as well as uh, pick up some copies of your book. We really do appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure, guys, and good luck with your careers. I'm so pleased to know you. Be well and wash your hands. Kirby Confer, legendary. 2021, I'll be reading Wiggles, Winks, and Wizards. Aircheck Season 2 continues, including radio vet turned media consultant Lori Lewis, whose aliases included Lori Lloyd, Randy, Andy Summers, and from the Bubba to Love Sponge show, Anita Wad. Plus, the creator of the classic rock radio format, consultant Fred Jacobs. Follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash aircheckme. Say hi, tell us what you think, or if you have a favorite episode. You can stream or download every episode of Aircheck on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, and open Aircheck or play Aircheck on your smart speaker. If you haven't done so yet, make sure you subscribe and also give us a great rating. This is Rich DeSisto. And I'm Paul Kelly. We'll talk to you soon. See ya. Closing out another episode of Aircheck, a podcast about radio's personality from radio personalities. If you have radio stories to share, we'd love to hear from you. Join the Aircheck guest list. Email aircheckme at gmail.com. Musical props are Chris Gordon's. Announcer props, I'll take those. Greg O'Brien, the OB. Aircheck seasons one and two available now on Apple Podcasts. Spotify, or Google Podcasts. You can also listen on your smart speaker. Just say, Alexa, play AirCheck Podcast, or OK Google, play AirCheck Podcast. AirCheck is the creation of RDPK Productions.